When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One, and we are recording yet again for part two with Dr. Matthias Desmond coming from Belgium and Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Matthias Desmond, obviously, you came on in January talking about mass formation and Dr. Robert Malone, who uh, is most, I would like to think, he is most famous for inventing the mRNA vaccine, but in my world, he is most famous for getting me permanently banned from YouTube. But these two together talking about mass formation and for all future listeners, whereas the first episode we did was January 4th, 2022. Today is Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. And I, I've i been feeling, and I think most people have, but I think it's, it's probably reached uh, a majority at this point, 51% or greater. Most people feel like the psychosis of the COVID madness is breaking back down. But Dr. Mullen, you were just saying before we start recording that Dr. Desmet has a, a new video about do we want to be hypnotized? Could you could you both explain that to me? Because I'm unaware of it. Matthias, you lead. It's your video. Yes. Well, um, it's... This video was recorded, I think, some, somewhere in, in February or something. So I'm oh, not, uh, I don't know exactly anymore uh, what I told in the video, but um, it was definitely about uh, the fact that mass formation is a, a, sp- a specific kind of hypnosis and um, that in one way or another, people who are in it don't want to wake up. It was something like that, I think, but I think Robert... Robert saw it yesterday, so maybe Robert, maybe you can tell me what's what's in it. <laughs> so what what impacted on me in in the in the video that was about an hour hour and ten long uh, interview of Matthias uh, against a backdrop of the windows before I believe his farm. So we were looking out over green fields, and it was very appropriate. Um, Matthias was speaking about. Um, his observation that a large fraction of the population may actually wish uh, to to be controlled, um, may wish to be hypnotized, and that really synergized with one of some of the things that I've been observing about the um, discussion, very active discussion going on in the United States about the. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use terms, I'm trying to use them carefully. Uh, we, I, hopefully it hasn't hit you, Matthias, but we use terms like woke and cancel culture mm. and the cultural parameters around the idea that gender dysphoria is fairly widespread and that it's acceptable to um, perform gender reassignment surgery on adolescence uh, and um, all of these had struck me as having a common theme of people believing that they should be protected in some way from thinking or ideas that were foreign to them or would cause them cognitive dissonance. 
And in my mind, after listening to your um, discussion about a uh, hypothesizing the large fraction of the population, you know, 20% or whatever, a substantial number of, of members of the population may actually not wish to be free. That was a profound comment. Um, and uh, when it, when you, like before, it was one of those moments where I heard you speaking and suddenly the bells went off in my brain and, and I realized that you were really onto something in part of that, in that uh, part of that was an, a, a sudden awareness of my own cognitive bias that um, individuals, I, I was suddenly aware that I assumed that like me, most people wish to be free and that that may be a false assumption. And uh, so I thank your, your uh, insights uh, regarding that. We had, on Tommy's broadcast here, we had previously spoken about another one of the themes that you covered in that video, which is the obligation of uh, the dissenters to continue to dissent to help reduce the risk of the overall society falling deeper into the hypnosis uh, formation process, um, Mm. which I I speak about often as a uh, um, unfortunate justification for why I have to keep speaking out, um, even though at times I wish that I'm getting a little tired and I wish I didn't have that responsibility. But uh, um, this this new theme uh, that made me aware that I was assuming that most people wish to be free and that that may well be false and that uh, a large fraction of the population probably wants to be told what to do Mm -hmm. and uh, to have a leader and that they may appreciate an authoritarian leader. I'm reminded back when I was in my medical training uh, for clinical uh, diagnosis and uh, management, um, our, my preceptor pointed out that part of your patients are going to want to dive deep into uh, whatever the latest information is. And part of them are just going to be told, want told what to do. And, and uh, they don't want to participate in their treatment program. They just want to be treated and be told how to be treated. And, and it, it reminded me that there, there is this split in the population. Not everybody wants to take the time and responsibility and the burden that comes with uh, personal freedom and the associated personal responsibility. And in, as I, so I developed a substack around that. I was kind of triggered by your video and then went into a couple hour interview with the film crew here in, in which it kind of came together in my mind that um, that w- there is a, a world here in the United States of uh, parenting practices that involve over-sheltering or over-controlling children. This starts to get into your world because you're, uh, this is more having to do with psychology and psychiatry. And that these children that come from these overly sheltered homes uh, where the parents don't allow them to really interact with the world very much 
have various types of, I'll call them fragile uh, personality profiles and various characteristics, um, which include narcissism and many other things. And, and I was struck that um, this, this uh, world that we live in right now and all of the chatter that's going on here in the United States about censorship and propaganda fed right into that because for a large fraction of the population, they probably want to be sheltered. They probably, uh, again, I'm going into your space, but they may be seeking an authoritarian parent that they've lost. So I'm going to shut up my mouth and let you go now. I, I couldn't agree more, Robert. That's one of the secrets, I think, in this crisis. People want a harsh leader. People want a strict leader, a severe leader. That's exactly what Gustave Le Bon said already in the 19th century when talking about mass psychology. He said, make no mistake, if you want to lead the masses, you have to be harsh and cruel because the, ma the masses long for a leader who tells them what to do. That's exactly what also Eric Fromm wrote a nice book about the fact that um, we are inclined to believe that people want to be free. But most people don't. Most people are scared of freedom. Freedom brings with it responsibility. It brings challenges. It makes that you need to think. You need to do a certain mental labor. You need to think about your life. You need to think about the decisions you, decisions you have to make. And if you do that, you will be rewarded with a certain deep human satisfaction and the sense of creativity, of really a sense of feeling that you exist as a human being. But most people prefer uh, not to do it and prefer to look for someone who tells them what to do. Um, and um, that's one of, the, one of the strange things. It makes me think also about this nice song um, of Eric Clapton, which was released during the corona crisis. I think it... The title was something like um, a stand and deliver in which he says, do you want to be a free man or do you want to be a slave? And most people answer, I prefer to be a slave. And at the same time, once they are a slave, once they found someone who tells them what to do, they will start to resist and they will start to be unhappy, not knowing why. And often they will start to object against the one who tells them what to do. But at the same time, deep in themselves, they will realize that they need them. And they will start to feel a certain very aversive dissonance in, themsel in themselves. But it's a fact that many people um, uh, constantly look for a job, for instance, well, where someone tells them what to do and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and makes clear uh, what they are expected to do in such a way that they can avoid to be confronted with the intrinsic uncertainty that is so typical for the human being. Human beings differ from animals, not because they know more. They differ from animals because constantly throughout their existence, from when they are born until they die, they are confronted with something that they cannot grasp, something that escapes their mental system, something that they don't understand. They are constantly confronted with questions 
existential, existential questions such as who am I? What is the meaning of my life? What does the other want of me? What do I want? Humans' existence constantly gravitates around something their mental system cannot grasp. We are some, constantly trying to learn. So this uncertainty is what uh, hounds people. It's what, it's what they, most people constantly try to avoid. And other people accept the uncertainty and they find in this uncertainty, uncertainty the source of their singularity, the source of their a, a truly own identity, the, the space in which they can be creative, in which they can interpret life in their own way and make life really into their own life. So, but most people draw back they, they, from, from, from uncertainty and they try to find someone who takes uncertainty away from them. And that's exactly one of the secrets of the phenomenon of mass formation and of totalitarianism. The totalitarian leader claims that he knows that he knows, and that's the origin of the world of the world of the word totalitarianism. The totalitarian leader claims that claims that he knows the total truth, that he can offer an ideology which tells people what they have to do from the minus. From the, from the smallest details of their existence, from the way in which they clothe themselves, in which they build their houses, the ways, the ways in which they, they have to orientate in life at every single detail of life. That's what a totalitarian leader does. And totalitarianism can only emerge in a situation in which people feel sick of freedom, in which people look for someone who takes the burden of freedom from their shoulders. That's exactly what totalitarian, totalitarian, totalitarianism is. That's exactly the kind of condition under which mass formation, which is the basis of totalitarianism, emerges. You can always see it. It is after a period in which people became sick of individualism, in which they don't want to be confronted with the duty to make choices, the duty to think about their own existence. It's under these conditions that people are sensitive to these narratives, which... Uh, reduce everything to a very simple uh, schedule or a very simple frame of thinking, uh, which is offered by uh, uh, people who have an ambition to become totalitarian leaders. Thank you for that. I, uh, you're, uh, um, I'm, I'm reminded of our dinner in Andalusia uh, when we had a good uh, chat. Um, and started thinking together. I, I really enjoyed that. I'd like to share another thought that came uh, to me in a different podcast with someone who is a uh, expert, economics expert, representing the Bitcoin community or blockchain-based uh, decentralized currency. And he had the observation that the totalitarian often emerges, totalitarian structures, often political structures often emerge um, uh, following a period of major economic disruption, typically associated with hyperinflation, was his, his uh, thread, that the economic disruption is a factor in setting up uh, the, the failure of sense-making the belief that things don't um, make sense, the world is not making sense, which you've also spoken about. Have you thought about the uh, 
economic drivers and as we head into what appears to be a period of hyperinflation, what the role of inflation was as a precursor, particularly in the rise of the Soviet Union and the rise of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't think about that, but I can imagine that there's um, a connection between the two exists historically, for instance, uh, and maybe the economic disruption, like the fact that uh, there, there is something like or, or like hyperinflation, which emerges in a certain time, which starts to happen in a certain time. Maybe it also shows that in one way or another, uh, the entire narrative that um, structured a society, the in- entire narrative that led to a certain stability in society starts to collapse. And uh, the monetary system, I think, is part of, of uh, is, is an indicator of the trust people have uh, in, in, in society. And the, the, the trust people have in, uh, in the symbolic system that, that, uh, that uh, is, uh, is the backbone of society. And um, uh, maybe that's just, it's just at the moment that, uh, that uh, people uh, stop trusting the narratives uh, that um, um, unite people and that, that actually are the, are the basis, the foundation of society. It's maybe at that point that both ah, okay. hyper starts so, to happen. So we use the language of, uh, in this prior uh, interview that I just saw recently that was just posted like a week ago, um, you, you spoke at more length about the fact that we always have narratives, that uh, as humans, we must rely on narratives. It's how we make sense of the world. And that, uh, that so if I'm following your point, um, hyperinflation could be one causative trigger that would cause a population to lose faith in a dominant narrative uh, and then go seeking a, an alternative. Is that, am I following you? Yes, absolutely. That's what I meant, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. As a human being, we, we, we constantly need narratives. We are born into a narrative. And that's, uh, as, I, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, that's exactly what distinguishes human beings from animals, I think. Animals use sign systems to communicate with each other and the 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 uh, reality of an animal is structured through their sign systems. And no matter how complex a sign system is, no matter how complex the system is, it always has one characteristic, and that, that is that the signs refer in a stable way to something. This or that cry uh, means uh, danger, or it means that uh, uh, hunger, or it means uh, uh, something else, but. The, there is a stable one-to-one relationship between the sign and that to which the sign refers. That's a, a, a characteristic of sign systems. Human beings use language and symbols, and symbols do not refer in a stable way to one object. Symbols, in the first place, refer to other symbols, and that makes the meaning of a symbol dependent on the context of symbols in which it appears. So there is a constant and endless regression in what a symbol means. If a, if a mother says to her child, 
I want you to be a good boy, then that can mean all kinds of things. And the child will probably never really know what the mother exactly meant by it. And even the mother herself won't know it perfectly. And that, that makes the fact that we always, we always need a symbol to determine the meaning of another symbol. But this new symbol needs an, still another symbol to determine its meaning. So that means that we always lack one symbol to, to fixate the, the meaning of the set of symbols we have at our disposal. And that makes, that leads to this very characteristic uh, aspect of human experience that we are always uncertain. We are constantly, our existence constantly circles around something that we are not sure about and that we want to be sure about. So we constantly construct all kinds of narratives to give a little bit of stability to our lives. So we constantly need a narrative and dependent on the narrative we uh, use uh, as, as a framework of our lives, our attention will be focused on one thing in life or the other thing. And that's indeed in a society, the big shifts, I think, at the level of society are, are always characterized by a shift of the narratives in which people try to find their certainty and try to find their stability. And I guess that that's exactly what happens uh, when a totalitarian system emerges. It, it emerges at the moment. People don't find stability anymore. People don't find an answer anymore in the narratives they believed in. And I, I would not be surprised if that's exactly the moment at which we also lose our trust in uh, the, 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 the monetary system we use, because the monetary system is one symbolic aspect of our of narrative we believe in. So yes. Yes. I, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure about what I'm telling now about this, but I, I would not be surprised that it's a hypothesis, but I would not be surprised that um, um, that's a little bit what is going on in a, in a society when hyperinflation emerges and then it becomes vulnerable for a total, totalitarian leaders who use this vacuum, this, this, this lack of narratives uh, that people can use to, 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 to orientate and to structure their lives, to impose a massive totalitarian narrative to the population. Um, it, it sounds like uh, it sounds like a simulacron simulation, right? It's the images based on images based on it. Or when you go into a, a dictionary and they just give you synonyms and you keep going from synonym to synonym to never finding the true thing. But it's even like what, what JP, I mean, ironically enough, I'm concerning monetary inflation. I mean, what did JP Morgan say? All cash is just credit. Gold is money. So even now it's like, I have ones and zeros in my bank account. Granted, it's like $12, but it's digital ones and zeros, right? I can go get cash for it. So now I've backed up the symbol. Well, what, what about the cash? Well, I could theoretically, it's not backed by, but I could purchase gold. Okay, gold, sure, that which exists tends to persist. But even gold, what is, I can't eat it. I can't burn it. I can't, what is, what is gold? And so you could actually even take that and say, if our core, if the core uh, uh, genome, the, the genotype is gold, the phenotype is everything that's expressed from it. If you could obliterate that second to base level, gold being the base, fiat money, the US dollar, the reserve currency being the next one, if you could obliterate that, not only are you removing probably the most stable things of all of our lives, aside from oxygen and the, the sun rising and setting, is that cash is king. If you remove that stability, that drives people insane. And it also, you would think it's taking away freedom 
But in a weird way, inflation almost forces freedom and that you have guys like me who are 31, who now I'm looking up things I never thought I'd have, like how to hedge against inflation, right? You got to get assets or gold or, or whatever. That's freedom. And people, as you're hypothesizing, don't like freedom. So all of a sudden it's your dad, you're 15 and your dad's going, you know what? Here's the car. Here's your own apartment. Go live on your own. And you're going, I, I, I don't want this. Well, then comes in the boot and the boot goes, you could just live in this jail cell. And you go, I want the boot. Sorry, I had to get that out there. I Wonderful. Think yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, sorry. I got um, a little excited. So, so, but but riffing off of what you just said, Tommy, I don't want to take this over. I, I'm no, here to learn no, from no. you. Who, who cares? Um, no. but I've been spending a lot of time with uh, folks in the cybercurrency world. Uh, and the cybercurrency world has two big divisions. One is centralized digital currency. And the other is decentralized, and um, what what and those are fundamentally different. And and we've seen the world of centralized digital currency in something that happened since Matthias and I last spoke, which was the events of Ottawa and uh, Justin Trudeau weaponizing the banking system to implement uh, political force on the general population. That and particularly anybody involved in the trucker protests, that was a huge wake-up call to the world. And I can tell you that in the in the realm of these uh, billionaire-type folks, that suddenly I find myself rubbing elbows with, strangely, um, it it was a huge, huge wake-up call. And uh, so I'm going to quote from a uh, a little chat I had with Brock Pierce down in Miami. Um, a few weeks ago, Brock Pierce being one of the key kingpins in the Bitcoin world. He spoke at length about something that ties right into what Matthias was just talking about. Bitcoin as a, um, a one form of blockchain-based decentralized cyber currency, which basically is a representation of energy. Um, energy expended. Bitcoin is generated by solving a computer algorithm, which basically comes down to energy uh, required to, to run computers to solve that particular equation. Um, so just to get that definition out. But as we spoke about cyber currency and decentralized cyber currency in general, as opposed to fiat money, he, he talked about the fact that cyber currency represents a token, just like the dollar, the buck, represents a token, which is exchanged. And in a, in a uh, society in which we only have the option to trade material goods, then we don't need a token because we're exchanging, I'm giving you apples and you're giving me some beef or whatever the exchange is, right? Um, in a trade, in that kind of a barter economy. And that uh, the cyber currency is a, an electronic token that represents a value that can be exchanged between individuals. That's what it is fundamentally. The buck is the same, except the buck in, in the view of many people in the cyber currency world these days. Fiat currency 
is just uh, not pinned to anything of value and can be printed and manipulated to suit the political needs of uh, whatever the dominant political power is. I'm trying to move it back into Matthias's world. Uh, so if, if I, if to translate it back into, or try to bridge back to what Matthias just said, in Brock Pierce's synthesis, um, cyber currency represents a token. And uh, in Matthias's synthesis, um, that token is one of those representational objects in intellectual space and human mind, uh, which uh, is, it's a virtual concept, really. We're, we, have, we have an agreement between ourselves intellectually that this token is a thing. It represents a form of value that we can exchange that's backed by something. And by the way, a lot of the Bitcoin folks are going into thin gold that can be broken off, I'm told, um, as they're looking at what's coming at us, uh, just to your point. Uh, but, but then in Matthias's synthesis, fiat currency is a token also. And um, at a time of crisis or turmoil and hyperinflation, the populace basically loses faith in that token. And by extension, the system that it represents, um, if I can exchange, extend from what Matthias just said, the fiat currency or whatever our token of exchange is, almost completely embodies our beliefs about the culture within which we live and the rules that constrain us. Am I getting that about right, Matthias? Yeah, uh, that's the way I understand it. Definitely. But Robert, you were distinguishing between uh, centralized and decentralized digital coins. Is that like decentralized is like a Bitcoin and centralized is like the, the digital coins that might be introduced by the central banks now? Is that is that how I should understand that? or Precisely. Uh, so you hit it on the head. And it, those two, that distinction has profound political ramifications. No. Uh, because in a in a so a decentralized uh, um, blockchain based uh, currency vehicle, let's call it. Where Bitcoin is like a brand, really. Mm. Um, it's saying a euro or something like that. It's a brand. Um, uh, um, in in a decentralized blockchain based cybercurrency transaction. Um, it is truly peer-to-peer. There is no intermediary. Um, that, that transaction is totally neat to do, and the rest of the world can trace that that transaction has occurred. This is the value of the Bitcoin, I'm sorry, the blockchain-based technology. So to give another illustration, in a blockchain-based uh, social media environment, let's just take that since it's a hot topic with Elon Musk and all that. Um, in a blockchain-based uh, social media environment, you can't have a monolithic uh, um, editor slash censor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, to use a, another metaphor, if you look on Wikipedia, 
Um, you can see who the editors are that are manipulating the Wikipedia. Um, but once they've manipulated it, it's very difficult to go back prior to their manipulation. But in a blockchain-based world, everything is transparent. And um, you can basically, when someone introduces a chain, a change to a, a document or, or a discussion thread or whatever, it creates a fork with a, with a, bit, with a blockchain address, basically. And um, that uh, event is fully transparent. This is the entity that created that change. And this is the derivative of that change. And anybody, it, they, so for instance, you and I now know how, how media and social media can be manipulated and we can be delisted, deplatformed, made to go away. Um, in a blockchain-based uh, um, digital environment, like people are talking about Web3, that can never happen. People can always go back and they can trace and track exactly who is manipulating that thread. And they can decide to go down this fork instead of that fork. No. And this fork can still exist. That becomes like a splinter discussion mm -hmm. off of this initial fork. Like So akin to that with the um, uh, decentralized blockchain-based version of these exchangeable tokens, uh, that we can call Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever, fill in the blank, Ethereum. Um, uh, then um, th that transaction is doesn't isn't mediated by some third party central bank entity. Yes. Well. And as soon as they're taken out of that, if they if they if you can create a financial system which is more akin. It's, it's more true to the original barter world. In a world of barter, I have a bag of grain. You have a bag of flour. We exchange it at some rate because you're adding value when you transform my grain into your flour, right? And uh, so there's some differential in the value there, which we can both negotiate and accept. And there's no intermediary. I don't have to go get the Bank of America's approval for us to have a, a transaction about my bag of grain and your bag of flour. And in, in this decentralized blockchain uh, token world, which is what it is, um, then uh, we, can, we can use that intermediary object and exchange it, this token, and exchange it between ourselves as a surrogate for the um, commodity entity that we are basically exchanging. Um, without the need for a third-party arbiter that's holding, as, as Tommy just said, in his world, he's got zeros and ones sitting at uh, Wells Fargo or whomever he's going to, TD Bank, perhaps, he likes Canadians. Um, I'm being facetious, Tommy. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, TD was one of the biggest violators here. I know. And, and they're, they're not, they're, therefore, in that world, um, there's no opportunity for those that control the very large blocks of financial power and currency to intervene. There's no opportunity for them to use that um, third-party transactional relationship as a means to exert political power. 
Go ahead. Is it, based, is it based on the principles of anarchy? It fundamentally is an anarchic system. I completely mm. concur, at least in terms of uh, the exchange of value via a token. It is totally anarchical. It is totally decentralized. And mm. what it might offer um, as we, you know, every the people that I'm interacting with are still processing Many of them are, are, what I'm experiencing is some of the most brilliant minds I've ever encountered, um, yourself aside, um, of course. But uh, um, you didn't even smile at that, Matthias. Uh, so, <laughs> Come on, Matthias. <laughs> I think uh, I, that's why I so, smiled. So, I, I saved it just in case. These guys, these guys and gals are um, still trying to imagine a new world. Uh, based one in which um, the uh, political, the politicization of economics is no longer an option in the sense of uh, exploiting um, economics to exert political control, which there's, there's a, I'm sorry to, I'm dominating again, I apologize. Um, there's no, a whole nother discretion thread discussion thread that um, what we're experiencing in a sense is the interface the con intrinsic conflict interface between a virtual world and a analog or real world um, and in a virtual digital world uh, which is where meta and uh, and the big banks, uh, you know, much of the, uh, let's say, BlackRock, um, uh, Wall Street traders, uh, they live in this cyber world. And there, the, there aren't many levers of power, even though the cyber world has gotten so powerful and has come to dominate politics and geopolitical um, relations it, it still has very, very few levers of power that it can exert um, to control populations, exert its authority, its political power. And one of those is through centralized control of centralized currency. It's one of the only ones it has. This is the, the thesis of why Justin Trudeau went straight to this, uh, they, they first he brought in outside forces into Canada, into Ottawa. That's, um, some know about that. Those are not Canadian Mounties or cops in Ottawa. They were outsiders from outside the country. Um, and then that, that was still causing so much disruption. He went to the uh, strategy of canceling them financially. And uh, that's when things blew up, right? That's when the whole world said, uh-oh, um, suddenly the Canadian banking system is not a safe haven. But it was, it's, it's transformational. And that's what I'm hearing is that, that um, there's an event horizon uh, foreseen of major, major financial disruption that is what is driving the, the, the logic of the World Economic Forum during this crisis. 
um, with the Schwab book, The Great Reset, the, 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 it's still, even if you read The Great Reset, by the way, it's not very well written if you haven't read it, um, and it's full of pseudoscience. Um, I, I'd love to hear your analysis of it, psychology. I read the psychology. first book. <laughs> and that's probably all you can get through. Um, uh, so uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but so the, the, there's a, a train of thought among those in the investment world that I'm trying to learn from uh, that what's really going on is the, the belief system that there is a, a, a boundary horizon financial disruption event and that um, a lot of this is wrapped around trying to come up with a plan and a structure and some control elements to be able to control and manage through that boundary event so that the powers and the finances that are, are dominant now are able to maintain their dominance on the other side of that boundary event. Did that make sense? It was a lot of words. Oh, hmm. Cool. It, no. it, it, you know, there's kind of some, there's, or, uh, there's some parallels to, uh, to people like me screaming about section 230 for two years. Elon goes and buys Twitter. And now the government all of a sudden comes out and goes, we've been looking at section 230 since the day Joe Biden was inaugurated and we want to, it's forcing their hand in much the same way when the United Launch Alliance really hated when Elon was doing SpaceX and started to get those sweet defense contracts from the National Geospatial Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. It forces you to evolve, which is, I mean, again, back to the monetary system, J.P. Morgan and, uh, and Senator Aldrich, when they went to Jekyll Island in 1913, their big thing was competition. Competition is a sin. When you have the monopoly, you can do whatever you want and then you can inflate it and do whatever. But as he's doing this, so it kind of seems like crypto is doing exactly what Elon did with Twitter. It's jumping in and now all of a sudden they don't have the whole pie to themselves. So they got to usher in this whole government digital currency. We got to, you know, we want a piece of the pie too. That's not in dispute. That is absolutely true. And I can tell you from hanging out with those guys, they're a bunch of revolutionaries. They, they want to tear down this system. Uh, They are the biggest revolutionaries I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, The stop. They're unapologetic. They wish to transform uh, the economic system of the society. And one of the core gripes is that inflation represents an unlawful tax. That mm-hmm. of course, um, of course. Yeah. 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 Matthias, I'd like to ask you about something else. Give me, give me one minute. I, I want to ask you a question. So, but oh. I agree with inflation definitely. It's like a hidden tax constantly on the population. But I have another question. Like within this blockchain technology, which is decentralized, suppose that there is a group of people who start to cooperate. Couldn't they become like a new centralized system within this central decentralized system? If they make agreements, if they could, could they not gain so much power within that system that they become like a new center which imposes its will to the rest of the system? That's what I wonder about. Yeah, I I, I would say the probability of that 
is built into the human psyche yeah. and uh, is approaching the asymptote of 100%. Uh, <laughs> I, um, the, uh, and um, I can tell you that the words that I hear um, among these uh, revolutionaries is that they're very aware of that risk and they're trying to build many of them. I won't say all, a large fraction of them are trying to envision and build a system that is very deeply built on game theory uh, that will mitigate that risk. But um, I think that this, uh, you know, the, the metaphor of Oppenheimer with the bomb comes to me from time to time. Uh, often it's put in my face because I'm blamed for the mass casualty <laughs> event of scenes um, uh, by various uh, podcasters that will remain unnamed right now, Tommy not being one of them. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, there's a case where um, there were good intentions among those that originally worked on uh, nuclear fission. Uh, and yet, um, the, uh, it was uh, transformed to to create a massive weapon, um, and and uh, the history of man is is one in which uh, the unintended consequences of technological evolution often seem to dominate uh, over the originally intended visions. And Matthias, you and I spoke about this previously with your. Uh, Computational modeling, which is another thing I'd love to catch up on. It it kind of okay. sounds like the Constitution again, right? It's 1776. It's breaking away from the king, and then it's a bunch of guys going, "How do we make sure this doesn't happen again?" And now we're here, so we have guys going, "How do we make I mean, sure it doesn't happen again?" I think that's a great metaphor, and I can tell you as I've been working on this book um, that I've got to get uh, out the door. Um, I'm, I'm having to think through um, what has happened over the last couple of years and what does it mean in terms of American politics and the concepts that you and I were brought up on in terms of American representative democracy. And I keep finding myself dipping back into um, the American Enlightenment and the words that were written then. And, and I read those words, and I am, I am often awestruck by how prescient and current they are. Oh, yeah. Sometimes there's words with odd spellings. But these were, and by the way, speaking of Matthias's point about the, I wanted to bring this up, so now's a good time. He was speaking that there's only a, a perhaps, he was speaking as if the majority of the population Wish does not wish to be free, does not seek freedom. And I'm sure you and I, you know, uh, that uh, it was something in the range of 10% of the American population that really drove the American Revolution. It, that, if that fits with what Matthias is saying, the majority of the population in the American colonies uh, we're perfectly happy to go along to get along uh, with the badness of King George. Uh, it was just this small subgroup that just became uh, burning 
with uh, the concepts of the Enlightenment and their opportunity to apply them into creation of a new nation state. Well, indeed. You know, according to according to Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, uh, the it- Italian Renaissance. You know, you know the French word Renaissance. Of course, yes. Renaissance, yes. I, I, I didn't. I was not sure that he used that word uh, in America as well. But um, the, the uh, Renaissance. I spoke about it. I spoke about it in Miami in the context of speaking about the Medici's as a oh, counterpoint okay. as a counterpoint to Klaus Schwab. So go ahead. No, no, great. So um, uh, no, according to Friedrich Nietzsche, no more than 100 people made the Renaissance happen. <sighs> Only 100 people were involved, according to him. I can believe that. Um, yeah. they, they were truly transformational. My observation was, and I'm not a true scholar of this, just a... Uh, um, passing student. Um, the history of the Medici family included this odd, as bankers, this odd characteristic of their their passion for architecture and the arts. Mm-hmm. And it, it may well have been that very odd conjunction of uh, a banker's wealth and stability with a, a artist's heart that is what enabled Florence and the Italian Renaissance. Yeah. I mean, that's powerful. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, at, at one point and people argue it, but it's in a uh, Garrett Graff's Raven rock, a book about nuclear bunkers because Truman didn't know about the uh, atomic bomb until I think six days after he became president beforehand though, when he was still a Senator, not a uh, vice president or a Congressman, one of his jobs was finding fraud, waste and abuse in the American war machine. And he was actually sniffing out these kind of weird things in Tennessee where a bunch of money was going in, planes weren't coming out. And he brought it up to, I think, Leslie Groves, general Leslie Groves. And he basically got like a, they came and patted him on the back and they were like, you're doing your job. Don't look any further. This isn't fraud, waste, and abuse. And he said, what? And he said, I'm one of only three men in the world that know about this. And he later found out six days after FDR died in Warm Springs that it was indeed the A-bomb. So, But even that, you could see only three people at one point led to the destruction of Japan and then setting up the Cold War. And then another thing I want to say back to what Dr. Malone said, if it's only 10% of people that uh, really fought for freedom, to me, that's that's incredibly inspiring and optimistic, because when you look out right now and you I don't know, you see all of Twitter or all of social media and you're like every person and their mother just wants to be a slave. The reality is, is you can actually use that to your advantage. If if 90 if 90 percent of people want to be a slave, that means there's 10 percent really kind of making moves. Some want a new world order or a great reset. Some want freedom which means you don't actually have to fight 90% of the people. You just got to beat the other 10%. And so it's actually much, it's not you versus an army. It's you versus just like the other general. And you're like, oh, oh, I can beat them up. It's just us. And then whoever wins takes all. And then the whole thing sways. By definition, the people that don't want to be free are not going to oppose your quest for freedom once you are the dominant power. They're going to go along to get along. Not to sound like a Machiavellian dictator, but you know, it's kind of optimistic. Dr. Matthias. Hey, if I could use this, if I could use this as a segue, sure. Um, Tommy, 
um, to another thing that I was hoping to speak to Matthias about. Um, this is the book that gave us uh, the term inverted totalitarianism. Um, and uh, I've been wrestling with uh, what does it mean when we have uh, Tony Fauci um, basically saying that leadership, bureaucratic leadership in health and human services above the law um, and should not be subject to judicial oversight. And it seems to be entirely compatible with Sheldon Wolin's uh, vision of inverted totalitarianism, which is something that I don't know if Matthias is familiar with or, or has had a chance to, to I didn't read grapple it, but... with. No, I didn't read it yet. No. But it's, it's the idea that traditional totalitarianism, um, which, as you point out, is a little bit pyramidal, right? Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned repeatedly that there may be a small number of leaders and they can be readily displaced. And in this mm -hmm. prior recent video, you speak about the relationship of evil. That was a profound segment where you speak about um, in a totalitarian structure, when the mass has formed, it's hard to say, does the mass create the leaders? The leaders create the mass. But if you were to eliminate the leaders, so in the current metaphor, um, if we were to get rid of Tony Fauci, just to take a stocking horse, um, a case can be made that the, the mass that is in this totalitarian thought space, a belief space, would basically recreate a new Tony Fauci. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the difference is that um, in an inverted totalitarian structure, you have the what Sheldon posits, and hence the name of the book, Democracy Incorporated, is that we now have a new form here where we have this fusion of corporate power with state power. Of course, we would call that fascism or corporatism or words, right? But that this is a, a little bit different in that what we've uh, developed here in the world, in the United States, and then exported to the world in a way through the World Economic Forum in part, is um, a world in which you have a fusion of uh, corporate, very, very large corporate interests. I mean, the World Economic Forum, as I read the guidance, the true members are companies with annual revenue in the range of uh, trillions of dollars. That's a very, very small club, okay? All of these young leaders and, and young scientists and all that, those are all window dressing. It's this core of something like a thousand or less global corporations um, that are, are driving the thing. And they've formed an alliance essentially with the bureaucracies um, so that it's not that they, so for instance, in the States, we speak about Mr. Biden as a puppet, a figurehead, and there's uh, behavioral evidence consistent with that. Uh, um, or we could speak of Emmanuel Macron, who's just reelected. Is he really the mind behind what's going on in France? Um, 
and the thesis behind Sheldon Walden's uh, book that's, is that's that intense. you've got you've got this fusion of large corporate interests and um, basically a functionary bureaucrat class. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. The, the metaphor might be um, uh, historic China, for example, um, uh, in in the periods of time where they had this large uh, bureaucrat class that basically ran the country. Um, so that's that's the thesis behind uh, this term inverted totalitarianism, and and I think in the United States we see it. And one of the clear faces that we saw recently was Dr. Fauci coming out and explicitly saying that the bureaucratic leaders in his segment of the government, Health and Human Services, were above judicial scrutiny. Over? Yes, Robert. Yes, I agree. I also feel and sense that the structure is different now. The structure of totalitarianism is different now, and indeed... I do believe that there is this, that the corporate world merges with bureaucracy and and, and the state structure. I I also feel that something different than the totalitarianism that we knew uh, in the first half of the 20th century. I was thinking about that the last week very intensively. And I'm I'm happy that you, you, um, you, uh, you show this book because I will read it. I think it's extremely important to understand in what way a new kind of totalitarianism emerges and what the structural characteristics characteristics of it are, because it is different. That's clear. That's clear. In the, in the, in the totalitarianism of the first part of the 20th century, there were always also large uh, monetary players, I think, large bankers and stuff who, who, who played an important role behind the scenes. But there was a clear distinction, I think, between the ideological structure of totalitarianism and the totalitarian structure itself. And and these large capitalist players, who also had an influence, of course, uh, behind the scenes, but there was a clear distinction. And I also have the feeling that now several of these powers merge together and form one system, form one, um, yeah, in one way or another, there is something really changed. the structure of totalitarianism is no longer the same. There is a great article from uh, October 19th, 2011 in Forbes, and it's the capitalist network that runs the world. They, anal- uh, they analyzed 43,000 transnational corporations. They found the largest 1,318 make up, uh, make up this weird sphere. And then within that sphere, uh-huh. they found out that there's 147 that control 99% of that sphere. And it's all central banks. So you kind of get to this point where you go, oh, man, you don't need to control the world. You can just find the pyramid on top of the pyramid on top of the pyramid. Which is precisely the point behind Larry Fink and BlackRock. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that appears to be the current summit. And uh, I just put out a sub stack today that kind of has a bunch of excellent links uh, from New Republic, there's a British writer that has been going at this. That's just done a super job. He's really been prescient all the way through. Um, so that might be worth looking at. But I, I want to introduce another uh, word or pair of words into our conversation. Stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, public private. 
Stakeholder capitalism is what most of these large entities are, are buying into. And this is, if, you know, you may sometimes scratch your head and say, who made Klaus Schwab king? Um, Klaus, if, if, and it's difficult to get to the bottom, what was Klaus Schwab's big contribution that would merit his position of authority? Um, and the answer seems to be an early paper that he wrote about stakeholder capitalism. In a, in a significant way, he was the first advocate for this idea. And this is what I think ties this whole thing together with the bow, the um, uh, censorship, propaganda, defamation, cancel culture, all of those things um, all, all come around in this uh, universe of stakeholder capitalism where um, basically uh, the electorate and, the, and, and you and I are outside of the structure. We're not allowed to look in. But these very large corporations in aggregates of capital, like BlackRock, um, have bought into the idea of stakeholder capitalism. And so they bring in advocacy organizations to represent those stakeholders. And so that's how these agendas are being injected into our politics without any formal kind of credit. Democratic move, Bella. Sorry about that. Um, it's through through this vehicle of stakeholder capitalism, which allows um, interested parties, Bella, that are outside. Somebody's just arrived on the farm. Bella doesn't um, like stakeholder capitalism. Outside of the process. Um, are not democratically elected, don't necessarily represent a major constituency, but can represent a vocal constituency. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and which uh, seem to be advancing the idea, as I mentioned, that people have a right to be free of, of cognitive dissonance, of things that cause them psychological stress. So ideas... Um, uh, differences of opinion, um, alternate views of uh, economics or society or uh, uh, energy use or any of these topics um, that you, you, one has these, uh, in addition to this inverted totalitarian structure, then you have an input vector coming into it that is totally uh, um, divorced and non-transparent from the body politic at large. They represent small interest groups. And that seems to be the, in my mind, that's the vehicle that's tying it all together right now. Mm. Yes, you know, what I also think is that is very interesting now at the moment in this, in this uh, crisis, for instance, is that the, the ideology uh, that leads the, the ideology of the new totalitarianism is actually delivered by the world economic forum so that's also yep. something that shows that shows that the gap the gap between the economic players 
and the ideological players which existed uh, in, the, in the totalitarianism of the first half of the 20th century disappeared. It merged. It, totally. came, to, it came together. And the first okay. half of the 20th You're century... Right. And there's a wheel diagram, an interactive wheel diagram that you may have seen, Matthias, at the World Economic Forum website that establishes all of their policy positions, which is to say their political positions, and the interrelatedness of each one of them. So you can click on this wheel diagram. Have you seen that, Tommy, that link? I have not. So for purposes of this podcast, um, ping me, and I will send you the URL, because I think it's useful to have it as a link for your your viewership. Absolutely. No. Dr. Desmond and perfectly illustrates what Matthias has just said. And uh, Dr. Desmond. Well, I just wanted to add to that that e- even from the 19th century onwards, there were like probably something like 10 families who who dominated uh, uh, the economic world and the and the and, and the banking system. So the difference is not that um, it's much more centralized now, the banking system. I don't think that's a difference. But in my opinion, that maybe the difference between the totalitarianism of the first half of the 20th century was that then there was a clear gap between these economic players and the financial players who had a huge impact, of course, and the ideology and the ideologists like Stalin or Hitler or Marx or Engels, no matter whom, the guys who delivered the ideology were clearly distinct, clearly different from the guys who had the economic power. And now it seems that they are the same. <laughs> the, people who, yep. the, the people who offer the ideology are the same guys who, who dominate um, the financial world. Um, so there's another book that I'd like to reference in this point um, that is from a New York Times reporter. And anybody that knows my recent history knows that New York Times is not my favorite publication right now, um, uh, having been on the receiving end of some of their uh, stuff. Um, Peter Goodman, uh, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. And one of the things that Peter uh, develops in his work here. Keep, keep is talking. Somebody's the, knocking at my door. You guys keep talking. Somebody's knocking. It's the idea that the stakeholders um, within the World Economic Forum have an odd drive that didn't exist at the turn of the century um, to somehow seek uh, social approval yeah. through philanthropic activities. And that yeah. they are, they, what Peter develops with a lot of evidence is that they use this language of, of social egalitarian uh, giving or structures. And obviously the um, poster child for this is Bill Gates uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, that they use these, uh, this language essentially in, in these, what are really modest actions on their part in the scope of the huge financial uh, assets that they control, they, they uh, basically, talking about tokens, they use tokenism uh, in the field of uh, um, social um, activities, uh, which are ostensibly philanthropic, 
um, as, as a way to obtain um, some sort of cultural external validation, which they seek. It goes right back to my point that so much of this seems to be driven by immature behavior, uh, that this need or quest or desire for some sort of external validation that wasn't seen in the prior monopolists uh, seems to be a characteristic of many of these Davos man players. Mm. Well, <laughs> Dr. Desmond, yeah. uh, uh, just as a, as an aside, I want to make sure that we're not keeping you because I know you're like 10 hours ahead of us or whatever Belgium is. Yes. Yes. I, I will have to, to wrap up in a few minutes actually, but um, yes, I, I like, I, I like that very much actually to think about that. And then it brought me, really new insights, things I, I was I had been thinking about for some weeks now and who suddenly uh, become much clearer now. Um, I, I realized since quite some time that, that something in the structure of totalitarianism really changed since, for instance, Hannah Arendt made her analysis. But that's one of the differences, I think, yes. Well, I, I just finished a book called Tomorrow the World by... Um... I think Stephen, I think is his name, Wertheim, Dr. Wertheim. And it's about, it's a, it's a take on uh, American hegemony that I'd never heard before. And it's actually, it was the, we had these in-depth plans for about how we were going to rule the world before we had even entered World War II, which I don't think is anything new, but you see a shift in the mindset of we're going to dominate to there is a bunch of people kind of whispering in the president's ears that this was our responsibility that if we didn't step up and become the world police and dominate the world, dominate shipping lanes, that Nazi Germany would, and that we could only do isolationism for so long before they became a world power and then crushed us. And so you kind of see this true believer mindset of we have to be the world police. And it, it's an odd shift from the idea of a bunch of evil guys smoking cigars and twiddling their mustaches to this, this mindset that if we don't do it, Nazi Germany will, someone has to be the bad guy. So might as well be us. Um, it, it, you listen to that and you go, you see how well they planned it. You're listening to it and you're going, this is what the world looks like today. And you're, you're, you're hearing all their plans and reading it, but it's from 77 years or 82 years ago. It can't help me think, like, are we watching another great shift right now? Are we seeing these people, be it true believers or just be it psychopathic uh, dictators? Are we watching the shifting of a new world right now? And is that why it just seems to be like the movement of glaciers? Like it's going slow, but no one can seemingly stop it. Just food for thought. Well, I think you're touching on some deep uh, truths and uh, when you speak about these things, the name Dulles comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Alan, um, Alan John Foster. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and basically this thread that many of us are discussing, that behind many of these actions, we see the hand of the intelligence community. And I oh, don't think yeah. that that is conspiracy. And... Uh, the the integration, the other thread that seems to be integrated into this new totalitarianism or inverse totalitarianism is the role. It's not just the U.S. intelligence agencies. It's it's the what do they call them? Five eyes. Mm -hmm. um, 
in particularly British and the reciprocal relationship between the US and the British intelligence agencies. So we see this come out in the things that we've observed like nudging on the weaponization of fear by governments, um, the uh, management of information, propaganda and censorship um, all seem to uh, be traceable. You know, in my own case, if you look at the Wikipedia manipulations of my own CV, you see that the same individual, or at least it's a sock puppet, it appears to be a group of individuals that have been tracked by some to represent a group of uh, members of the British intelligence community. But the point is the ones that were manipulating and continue to do so, my CV on Wikipedia, also have the same sock puppet as manipulated all of the statements about ivermectin and now is actively manipulating all of the statements on Wikipedia regarding Ukraine and the Ukrainian conflict. Mm -hmm. Same. Okay. Um, and this, I think as Matthias is thinking forward, I hope that, that this thread uh, is something that he can, can weave into his story and his insights is that we now have an integrated global intelligence community that seems to be um, aligned with the interests of this small group of uh, major financial interests no, uh, in all kinds of ways. I will integrate it because, uh, as you know, uh, the English version of my book will be published on totalitarianism and mass formation will be published in June, June 16th. But I'm working on a second book, which focuses much more on uh, indoctrination, propaganda uh, and so on. So more on the elite than on the masses itself. So um, it will be a, a thicker book, a, lit a little bit more difficult. But I think to make the picture the picture complete, that I have to add a second part to, to the first one, to the theory on the, on the masses itself. So I, I, or, I definitely... Or, uh, uh, rather than saying it, make, making it more complete, um, uh, um, addressing the specific example of this uh, current embodiment of, of what's really a continuous thread of intellectual effort that includes... I think in substantial way traces to Hannah Arendt uh, through your work. Um, I recommend to you the speech which Barack Obama gave at Stanford University um, to his new foundation um, in which he advocates for the importance of censorship mm -hmm. in order to defend democracy. Oh. It is totally Orwellian. Where can uh, I find he it's available online, I'm sure, because it's still a hot news topic, um, is, is Obama, and I think it's called the Obama Institute at Stanford, and uh, his recent speech in defense of censorship as a necessary uh, um, activity uh, to defend democracy. No. And well, well, well. Democracy. I thought democracy was, should be based on the freedom of speech, and Obama now claims exactly the opposite. Precisely. <laughs> um, this is at the core of the Twitter controversy that's playing out. I mean, Twitter. You're you. I I just can't. Um, 
I'm always struck by the rich data sources that are volunteering themselves for your research <laughs> through this period. <laughs> and, um, and the the Twitter controversy is a real time uh, play out on on this whole topic of the interface between corporatism, uh, democracy, and free speech. Or I always get reprimanded, representative democracy. Oh. Um, I think we, should, Tommy. I think we should let uh, Matthias uh, go to sleep because he probably has to take care of his sheep in the morning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Doctor Desmet. Um, and I know you're coming out with a book. So when that comes out, I will put it in the description. Um, and Dr. Malone, you're working on a book. So when that comes out, I'll put it in the description. And for everybody listening, I'll put y'all social media and sub stacks and all that good stuff in there. I'll also put in a list of a, of a handful. Lies my government. There we go. There we go. The plug, the plug. It's for, ev- for everyone listening. I will also put it in and for you too, as well, uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. Desmond, I'll email these to you. If anybody's interested, I don't care, but there's four or five books that I think if you listen to in order, it, it, it everything makes sense. Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan M. Katz going back to like American interests in the late 1880s. Uh, the Plot to Seize the uh, White House by Jules Archer talking about a 1933 coup attempt. Uh, the Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, uh, which a lot about the Dulles brothers. Then you could say Family of Secrets by Russ Baker is more about the Bush dynasty getting involved in using banking and oil to move around the world. And then finally, the book I just finished, uh, Tomorrow the World by Stephen Wertheim. When you look at the last 100 and really 1880 till now, last 142 years, you go, oh, it doesn't make it any better, but you go, oh, oh, okay, that's 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 why it's like if you view the security camera and you see uh, you see your cat running around your apartment, tearing everything up. And, and then all of a sudden, the fluff on the floor makes sense. It doesn't make it better. But you go, that's why the pillows torn open. It was the cat. So it's, it doesn't make anything better. But listen to those books. I'll put them in the description. I'll send them to you guys on email. If you listen to those in order, you go, oh, it really the CIA really does run the world. And it's the dollars and backed by gold. It's backed by the military industrial complex. Doesn't really help. But I don't know. If anybody wanted some light shit on it, but I, I, said, I want to tell me, I want to riff off. I just can't resist. Sure. You mentioned about the bushes and the uh, socket between finance and oil. <laughs> um, and the, the logic of petrodollars or commodity based um, currency as opposed to fiat currency. And um, I just wanted to leave with the thought that my, my Bitcoin people keep pushing into my brain which is that basically all of these tokens that we exchange represent energy. That extraction of gold is an energetic process that they are all virtually and functionally uh, representations of a form of energy of one kind or another. Over. Interesting. So whoever creates cold fusion controls the world. And Robert, Robert, con- congratulations with your headwind series. It's such a huge success. It's it's wonderful. I I can't wait until your uh, um, your particular episode comes out. And thank you for that. Um, I we we explored so many things together, and it was such a pleasure to spend time with you. And this is a, a little rekindling of that pleasure for a brief moment, thanks to Tommy. Um, I hope we get to do something like that again. I hope so too, Robert. Likewise. You guys are you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. 
Dr. Matthias Desmet, who Dr. Malone and I are being very rude and we're keeping up till whatever time it is in Belgium, 9 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever it is. I think you're six hours ahead. It's 9.25 p.m. I don't know. And, uh, and Dr. Robert Malone, two gentlemen, two uh, arbiters of, of misinformation and disinformation. And I, I look forward to sharing a bunk with you guys in the World Economic Forum gulag that we are certainly all going to end up in. It'll be a hoot. So thank you so much. I'll send you the guys the episode when it's up. All the links will be in the description, their books, their upcoming books, their website, social media, all that good stuff, as well as the audio books I mentioned, if anybody wants to listen to those. Thank you so much. God bless you both. Everybody else out there, stay safe.